I want to love and cherish what time I have left on this earth. I don't want to be a bitter and angry old man. It's not my thing. Life is too short for this kind of situation to hold me in its grip. Raymond Tony Charlie. That's a good one. That was Brandy. <laughs> I'm Kayla. This is Two Bitches Reading Books. I need to start upping my game and pulling quotes from books. Um, I mean, that's the last line of this book, spoiler alert, but yeah. I mean, that's his takeaway from his experiences. Yeah. So before we jump in, we should probably do a trigger warning real quick. We're definitely going to be talking about child abuse, sexual abuse and assault, suicide, a lot of triggering things. I was shaking at some parts of this book. I was too. It was freaking depressing. It was so depressing. Also, I don't like it, but I, and I have to remember that he is not an author and I have to remember that he probably doesn't have like a real editor, but there were just like some things that were very repetitive and redundant in the book. And then there's this one paragraph that is just like randomly in there that I'm like where the fuck did this come from what the fuck is this about because it has nothing to do with what was said before and it does sometimes get a little rambly you know I think that that's probably just because it took so long for him to write this book he started it and then his wife got sick for like a few years and then he had to come back to it and finish it yeah and he's old he is in his 70s so I looked up what residential schools were because he says that like 8,000 times they are American Indian boarding schools yeah and there were these residential schools quote-unquote what what a cute little name for these fucking awful places. They're basically like boarding schools, like you said, for indigenous children. And we had them in the United States. They had them in Canada. They had them in Australia, for sure. They probably had them everywhere. And like the governments would take the children from these families and put them in the boarding schools. Forcefully. Forcefully. If the parents fought back, they could go to jail. I mean, they would probably be literally fighting with the cops in the street. I assume that happens. Then these kids would go to these residential schools, have to go to school with the white kids. Mind you, like, if you're indigenous from the 1800s, you're probably speaking, like, not English. And they're being forced to assimilate into white culture because it would be better for them. I hope you're hearing the quotations in those last couple of phrases. Yes. Raymond is a survivor of two residential schools in Canada. Did you start at chapter one or did you read his invitation to you at the beginning? I read the invitation to you. Yeah. So he starts there just like explaining why he's writing the book, that he's a First Nations elder. He went to two residential schools like we mentioned. Families still have to deal with the trauma that happened across their lands in Canada today. And I actually underlined this one sentence on page nine. One of the primary reasons that... Oh, I have this highlighted too! (laughs) The Canadian government built the residential school was to kill the Indian in the Indian. Oh my god, this part made me sick. I have so many highlights on this page. Another one that stuck out to me was 150,000 children went through the residential schools. In yes. Canada. That's so many. And I also, at the end of page nine, highlighted this. Much of the racism and how they treat Indigenous people is still alive because mm-hmm. of the government laws, regulations, and various departments that continue to operate. Yeah, and I feel like that's true in Canada, the United States, Australia, and probably everywhere where there are Indigenous people. And the residential school started in 1876. 
Yeah, he does bring up a few times throughout the book that it lasted 120 years, and that's such a long time. He says on page 11, he is writing this because he feels that he must share for the purpose of letting people know his story, which may be similar to other survivors. He, like, a common thread throughout the book is that he wants survivors to get up and share their story because people need to know, and those fucking people who did the shit to them should be held accountable, if at the very least through the anger we have in our hearts at them. He says, take note, I have no need or desire to exaggerate what I say, as that won't help me or anyone. It would be detrimental to our people. So what I write are my experience in an honest, direct way as they occurred to me in my life. And that's at the end of page 12. And then we start chapter one, breaking families apart. On this first page, I, I, I underlined Catholic. He says residential schools would become a big part of the strategy to just kind of get rid of the Indian population, indigenous population. He says Indian in here. And since he is in Canada, I don't, I don't want to refer to them as Native American. Perfect. He calls it the quote unquote Indian problem that just I feel like they probably were writing that exact phrase in like memos to each other when they were making these plans it was ran by Catholics in what was called New France or Quebec Mm -hmm. is what it ended up being called yep so it's the Canadian government in tandem with the Catholic churches across the land and I feel like we we know it was the government in the other like countries and continents so I wonder how much of the other places were influenced by religion as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many uh, of my sticky notes are literally just this whole paragraph. Yeah. 134 residential schools were built, and they he breaks it down later on in the book, but they were built on reservations. Yes! My gosh. And, like, not because the tribes there wanted them. No. Because the government wanted it there, and it was probably cheap for them to do it. And kids from ages five and up attended the schools. And we mentioned that the cops would be called if parents tried to resist. Just fucking sucks. Yeah, I was a little confused here. Did they lit? Well, I guess if it's a boarding school, they lived at the residential school. So they never really went back to see their parents. Correct. And he mentions in later chapters that a lot of kids literally never saw their parents again because they died there. So this is kind of just like a high level overview of like what's going on his entire experience. This first chapter is he's talking about how heartbreaking it is to think of his villages with no children because you know they literally just ripped all the children out of there. Um, And he also talks about like his experience in the first residential school he was in. Um, He was kind of like a supervisor for some junior some younger boys ages six to ten. He would help them change into their pajamas and help them brush their teeth and say goodnight to all of them. And he would tuck them all in and give them hugs if they wanted. It's really sweet. Like he's had this whole demeanor that he needs to care for other people around him, even though he is going through the same shit that they are his whole life. He said oftentimes that he would hear people say, I miss my mommy. And when he would hear that, he would go over and give them a hug and be like, you know, they miss you too. They probably really fucking miss them so much. And that's chapter one. First years at the residential school. So the year is 1964. I kind of did the math and it seems like he was 13 okay. around this time. Um, maybe like 12, 13. Is it Cooper Island? I don't know. In my head, I kept saying Cupper, but I, I kept like- saying Cupper too. <laughs> but why yeah. do we actually pronounce you? Yeah, I'm, never mind. Cup. C-U-P-K-U-P. It looks like cup. (laughs) 
<laughs> so anyways, the island, the residential school called them villagers. So I feel like they're Disgusting. even separating them from, I guess, the white kids, the Canadian kids. I don't know. They're all Canadian, I guess, if we're calling that stretch of land Canada. They had to walk a mile to the classroom section of school every day because there was like a bunch of different buildings. And he's talking about how there are about 30 other kids, like we mentioned before. And he's pretty popular. The girls all like him. They'd send him little notes and stuff. And he kind of also talks like a theme throughout this is they give each other a lot of nicknames and stuff. So then you get to the second page of chapter two and you're like, oh, this is, I mean, they're going to school. He's having some normal school times. And what they're basically teaching them in their regular program is catechism, catechism. It's basically um, Christian principles. Catholic principles is being taught by Catholic nuns. And I think that these indigenous people are not Catholic, Christian, any of those things. I feel like that's a reasonable assumption, but okay, whatever. I did a sticky note here. Sorry to butt in. Oh, you're about to talk about the paragraph that I have a note saying, holy fuck, this paragraph, I assume. <laughs> I don't know if it's the paragraph, <laughs> but it's the first sentence of the paragraph. <sighs> he says on his brother's first day, or yeah, on his brother's first day as a student, he watched a nun walk over to a boy in class, grab off a handful of his hair and slam his face onto the desk. This was to dis discipline him and keep him in line. My brother didn't share this with me until years later. He says, my teacher actually used a pointer stick to strike a student and broke it on him for not listening. These pointer sticks were around and made of very hard wood. Another child was grabbed by the ear and made to stand in the corner all morning for not participating in class. And my note in this was, wasn't corporal punishment common in schools back then? And it was. And like, when I first read that, I was like, I feel like there better be more trauma in here because... Like, this was a thing. I can't believe that that was a thing. That's fucking crazy. Uh, yeah. One more reason I will <laughs> ever be religious. They be doing crazy shit. All in the name of some deity in the sky. That, that would probably never do this. That's the thing. Well, yeah, that's, that is a huge part of the thing, isn't it? Like, and if they would do that, why are you worshiping them? Yeah. If they would want you to do what you're doing, like, aren't you like, do I want you to love me? That, that fucking paragraph, I was shook when I read that. This is like the, the feeling of this book. You're going through, everything's fine, and then boom, a paragraph of violence. And then you just get back into getting nicknames and doing autograph books and signing cute little messages to your classmates. Yeah. And then we get back to another freaking sad one. Yes. So it seems like it's about a year later and he is like regularly going to the gym. And one day he goes to grab the handle and he gets like a weird feeling and he's like, I'm not going to go in there. And he goes back the next day and gets the weird feeling and doesn't go back in there. And then Later, the second day, the night watchman who he's related to, it's his uncle, um, discovered that there was a kid in there who hung himself to death by the bleachers. And that's not even the first death. The first one is one of his good friends went home to the home for the holidays to her family. Oh, fuck. And she didn't come back. And they found out she drank an entire bottle of hard liquor and died from alcohol poisoning. Yeah. I didn't even put a note on that one because the freaking suicide stuck out to me. He just casually drops the little nuggets of death and abuse throughout. Most of the people he's known have died. Yeah. He said the kid that hanged himself, he heard from a friend was he was being sexually abused by a supervisor. 
who watched the young boys. And that is a pretty common theme. I, and I feel like once you're the supervisor who's done it once and gotten away with it, are you going to stop? No. No, probably not. Then he starts talking about a school trip he went on in 1966. They went out to it's Easter break and a person named Brian Dufour invited Raymond to go along with them. They're checking out another residential school somewhere else. Oh, okay. Brian Dufour is someone that you should remember. Yes, for sure. We're going to be talking about him. They ride a bunch of horses. They do a lot of fun stuff. And there are a few paragraphs that are, you know, cute and fun. This chapter ends, like, relatively fine. They're just having a fine swimming, horseback riding, a little vacation. Chapter two kind of ends with him mentioning this trip to Williams Lake. And he does like to bring up the good times a lot. And I feel like that's probably really important to his healing, you know. So chapter three, life as a border, the abuse begins. So, like, one of the first things that happens is they cut all of his hair off and that's like in his culture the hair is very important i feel like actually even if it's not important to you the degradation of having your head fucking shaved reminds me of the holocaust it's traumatizing this first part of chapter three starts like fine like everything else does he's getting used to the daily routines but he was saying he is a little naive and some of the days were a little bit monotonous but they had like a paint fight him and his brother did one time the building's in empty at this point it's kind of the end of the summer and they're just like helping set up the school for the next school year i guess and as of right now his brother and him have not been directly affected by abuse he talks to people about their time at the residential school during this time uh while they were working there in the summer there were four girls that worked in the kitchen and they got to know them and talked uh to them and the girls shared their stories and history while they were at that school. God, this is so disgusting. They were shown a steel bin incinerator that was at the end of the soccer field. And the girls told him that newborn babies were tossed in there and the babies were born to the young girls at the residential school. And I assume their fathers were the brothers and supervisors who were supposed to be taking care of them. They also showed the boys the apple trees, and that's where babies were buried underneath. And in an old barn, which was converted to a gymnasium, he says it's really heartbreaking to share this now. Yeah, they just, they were burying bodies all over the place. And it's, it's not just that these people's children never came back. Their grandchildren they didn't even know about never came back either. I mean, who knows if they would even want that rapist's baby. But some people do grow fond of that little thing. And some just, people aren't as hateful as me and might see that it's also half them. Also just kind of is frustrating when Catholics will use religion as a way to be anti-abortion. But then they're actually killing living children. Yeah. Because these these actual are... practicing Catholics were killing actual babies after birth, which is murder and not abortion. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking hell. But what do I know? At the, my last thing, you know, on page 23 is saying, oh my God, they're going to go do dental work with no pain meds because now they're at the dentist. Um, they're getting ready for school and doing some dental care right before or maybe like right after school started. And the dentist says, you look like a tough guy, so I won't need to freeze anything for you. And something that just popped into my head when I was reading this is how um, like people of color and like even like fat people say that doctors often think that they don't really feel pain the same. Yeah. 
So they fucking drilled his teeth for three fillings with no pain meds. He just had to hang on to the fucking seat rests, the armrests for dear life. He said he was would open his eyes and he could see the smoke rising from the drill in front of him. Holy fucking shit. God bless him because he goes to the dentist still today. And if that were me, that would be my first and last trip to the dentist. He actually... In the end of page 24, the second to last paragraph, he talks about his current dentist. And that, I had the same thought when he was talking about that. Like, I wouldn't even try to find a new dentist. I'd let all my teeth fall out of my head. Yep. <laughs> Never again. Jesus Christ. He wasn't the only kid that this happened to. He went in a car full of kids that got worked on the same way. And I assume there was a carload every single day that went to this Dr. Mengele dentist. The, he is Dr. Mengele. Yeah. Like, he wanted to be. He's inspired by him. It is a second trip to Expo 67 in Montreal. But before we get there, he mentions at the top of page 25, there are boys huffing, um, probably just looking for an escape from abuse. So there's alcohol, there's huffing, there's probably anything you can get your hands on to not only forget that you're going through crazy abuse, but you're also away from your family against everyone's will and better judgment. And something that he mentioned in the invita his invitation to us, like the opening of this, mm -hmm. he he talks about the Native American or the indigenous person stereotype. So when you see an indigenous person, he says, you probably just imagine them as a drunk. Yeah. And it, it it's just making sense mm -hmm. because they're probably drinking to numb this pain. Yeah. And even if they didn't go through the resident residential schools, he talks about how the people who did go through the residential schools perpetuate the abuse onto other people in their families and in their community communities because they haven't healed themselves. It's a huge cycle, all started by Catholicism, IMO. So now we're on page 25. At this point, Raymond started doing things with school, so sports and band, and he really liked band, and he was really into it. Well, Brian DeFore had enough funds to take two kids to Expo 67 in Montreal, but the two kids backed out, so he had asked his brother James and himself to go in their place, and they were like, yeah, let's, let's go. This was in the fall of 66. They agreed to go. They marched in local parades. So they were re really excited to go for the Victoria Day Parade. And Man. this is actually kind of a big deal, this parade thing. Like, people came together and donated a bunch of money to get the band there and all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. So this should have been a good experience. Yeah, so the entire band went, and they stayed at a school in or a, a school in Victoria helped with their fundraising. So they went, they were able to go, they showed off, yaddy daddy. Brother Dufour sent everyone back home except for James and Raymond. Yeah, I'm like, this, at that point, I was just like, okay, this feels completely like a fucking setup. He explains the sleeping situation. There's like a bed and a hide-a-bed. And Brian's like, we're going to put one person on the bed and one child on the bed and the other child's going to lay in the hide-a-bed with me. That doesn't make any fucking sense. Put the kids on the hide-a-bed. Sleep on the bed yourself. Yeah. Fuck them kids. Let them sleep on the floor. Don't fuck the kids. Actually, that was his intention. Well, when I read that, I was like, why didn't he just have the two brothers? I wrote this fucking sleeping sitch because... The first night, James slept in yeah. the bed. And then the next day, um, the Dufours are all like, loving up on Raymond saying they want to adopt him and doing all like 
what? You met these kids two seconds ago and they have a family. That's what I thought too. I was like, that is so weird. Why are they offering to uh, like adopt them or at and least I, adopt Raymond? I've heard like stories of indigenous families from other places than Canada saying like this was a practice, like white families were encouraged to adopt indigenous children to like assimilate them. And they may have even been given tax benefits like foster families. Oh, are given, shit. you know, so I, I wonder if they wanted Raymond or they wanted what Raymond stood for. At the end of this second day, Raymond has to sleep in the bed with Brian. And then the third morning, James is like, did he do anything funny with you? And Raymond silently nodded yes. And they couldn't really talk about it because a bunch of people are around but of course brian wanted to do things to him and i'm like he's a typical fucking abuser he spoiled them with this trip in their first airplane ride and this like performance in front of the queen they did all kinds of stuff uh, they went to a bunch of restaurants his family was nice to them like even after this they end up getting some uniforms and like just showering them in gifts and then sexually abusing them in the dark disgusting it's so disgusting. Raymond just briefly mentions that he did something funny and then goes on to continue talking about the trip. And he mentions at the top of page 30 that this was actually the most time he'd ever had with his younger brother. And for that reason, he's thankful. We had almost every minute with the two of us hanging out together for all our activities over the summer. And then he just ends this chapter just like reflecting on his time in Montreal and what his brother got to do without Brian since they rarely got to see each other after that. Um, mentions how Brian ended up quitting. Raymond received a phone call from RCMP in Toronto and he talked about his sex abuse by Dufour at his parents' house. They were going to fly him in to testify but then later they said the case against him was cancelled. He was jailed for abusing children that he was caring for in a foster home that he went to work at and died while he was in prison. That was so fucking interesting, right? Did you stop and Google that this fucking second when you read this on page 30? No, I didn't. I did. And I was like, oh my God, this is a conspiracy. Like th there was like a whole like ring and these four dudes were all working together to like cover up each other's in their own like crimes or whatever, whatever these pedophiles do, like probably sending pics back and forth. I don't know. They didn't have phones serious? like that, but it was like four dudes working together. So they're, the RCMP like busts them and is like bringing down charges and like bringing them up to trial and like calling people to give testimony and all this and then weirdly three of them died very close to when they were supposed to be on trial oh that's that's sketch super sketch right anyways um so give that a goog that's an interesting read that's a that's a rabbit hole people could go down for days i didn't read any theories on who could have killed them or maybe it was just an accidental stress related death for all of them but i wish they would have lived 35 more miserable years hating every second of their life and getting jumped in jail well, we don't even know if it would have lasted long because wasn't there was... Oh, fucking hell. Yeah. We'll get there. So that's the end of chapter three. And we start in chapter four. First full year as residential school border, the abuse escalates. And before we like get into this chapter, I just want to let you guys know that the entire time Raymond is talking about himself as a confident young boy. Yeah. He, yes. And he's like popular too and you know everybody wants to be his friend you know until shit really gets crazy he's talking about the beginning of september 1967 in this 
chapter. That's his first full year as a boarder at the Cooper or Cupper Island Residential School. He's assigned to the senior dorm with other young teenagers. Glenn, Glenn Doty. Doughty? He's he going to be important. He doesn't deserve to have his name pronounced correctly. Yeah, who fucking knows? He ends up telling Raymond that he's going to get the room before the entrance to the dorm. And in there, he has a new roommate. His name is Felix. He's kind of talking about making friends and how they never really became close. And I imagine that that's a result of the abuse because everybody has to be kind of numb and they think that they're alone and they think they need to keep quiet because I feel like some, like when it first happens, you feel like it's your fault and you did something, you know? But then eventually Raymond gets moved to a new bedroom and he's all by himself and he's in a room with a bunk bed and he decides to use the lower bed because why not? It's easier to get on maybe. The priest, Dodie, told uh, Raymond to go into his room and Raymond goes in there and he says, lay on the bed. It's getting late. And he was laying there and Dodie turned off the lamp. After he turned off the lamp, he moved close to Raymond, put his hands in his pajamas, grabbed his penis. Raymond was like, I could almost feel my eyes pop out in the dark. He couldn't breathe. Dodie finished him. That's when we learned that Dufour did the same thing when they were in Quebec. And then Dodie grabbed Raymond's hand and forced him to jack him off basically yeah. that that whole thing was the end of page 32 top of page 32 talks about his whole sleeping situation which becomes oh. important soon every single time he has trusted an older man every single time an older man has taken an interest in him it has resulted in him being touched or having to touch someone sexually and I feel like that probably has affected every single relationship he had with a trusted person or anyone forever the rest of his life and I don't even feel that way he mentions it like just so fucking awful he we start page 33 with him already becoming so very uncomfortable becoming more guarded and isolated not really trusting and he just did what was necessary going through the daily routine along with other fellas. He says his demeanor as a youth began to change. He was more seriously and slowly losing confidence in himself. And he had so much uncertainty and puzzlement at this time. Wishing he could be done with doughty, dowdy, child abuser, pedo. So he mentions in the middle of page 33 that this fucker had him lined up for further encounters, he says, with his twisted abusive way. And he said one night he was sleeping on the bottom of, like, the bottom bunk in the darkness, and he was abruptly awakened by that dude. He grabbed his head and pushed his penis into his mouth, pumped to ejaculation, got off his knees, and left his room. He said he did this again every night for the course of four months, always waking me from my sleep to satisfy himself sexually. He says he wasn't able to sleep in dark rooms and like this abuse affected him for 50 plus years. And yeah, that makes total fucking sense. And the thing that really just fucking shook me about this story as if that wasn't disgusting and just demented enough was that one night four months into it he just thought to himself he's gonna move to the top bunk and the dude left him alone after that like this guy was such an opportunistic predator that the thought of having to reach up another foot turned his stomach like he needed his victims to be amiable amenable that makes me really sick it's disgusting. Thankfully, that's going to be our last 
instance of sexual abuse, but it is not Raymond's last time with dealing with it because he still has to live his Mm -hmm. whole life. Yeah. And at the end of 33, Raymond believes that Dodie went on to abuse another boy. Oh, this is the paragraph I was talking about that I did not get. Maybe you can answer this to me. At the top of 34, it says, unfortunately for me, someone posted information online that Mary passed to the spirit world. She will always hold a special place in my heart as she was so genuinely warm and caring to me. I'll always cherish my memories, this warm, sweet lady. But then, like, there's, like, nothing before it. There's nothing after it. I was so confused. Yeah, I feel like Mary was a girl that he had a little crush on. She was mentioned not in this paragraph, or not in this chapter, but in a chapter before. But that is kind of a misplaced. That doesn't really go with what we're talking about here. I just wasn't sure if I missed something. He ends up talking on page 34 about why victims like don't speak out and it's just because you feel shame and it feels like you just have to shut up because like why would they pick you and then he talks about how his relationships were affected when he was a young man he didn't think any women would want to deal with somebody who had been sexually abused and even though he had a lot of pretty girls around giving him love notes he didn't make any effort can't say i blame him I know. He mentions at the end of 34, uh, we didn't look for these men. They found us since we were so young and naive. When this happens to us, we become part of this chaotic abuse system that was so rampant at the residential schools. And he's totally right. Like, they find their victims, not the other way around. This fucker was sentenced to three years. I, I stopped and Googled it at this point. Three years. And by the time he was sentenced to three years for this, he had also been convicted and sentenced on three other instances, never being sentenced to more than three years. Like, that was his biggest sentence. But usually it was a couple months or a couple it's- years. It's disgusting. So disgusting. And I just imagine when you're giving these super light sentences to rapists, you're a person who feels like they could never be raped. Or maybe even in my darkest thoughts, I think you're somebody who relates to the person who does the raping when you're handing out those light sentences like that. That's the end of chapter four. Um, I hated that chapter. I did too. And now they're moving to St. Mary's Residential School in 1968 in Chapter 5. This is for the older kids. There's a lot of pictures in this book. We haven't really mentioned them, but on page 37, you do get to see him and his brother James, who is younger than him, but taller than him. Yeah, and this are cute. They are cute. And this picture, I, I flipped back to this when he shows a picture of his mom, because they have the exact same, like, nose and, like, cheek lines as their mom he explains here how they like live in the boarding school and then they go to the public high school which is weird but yeah he mentions how the people would be shuffled to occupational classes immediately and he like was really serious he wanted academic classes and i wonder if they were like shuffling the people from the residential schools to like occupational classes to get them into the workforce and like start pumping out some tax dollars from them because you know i I always think the worst well that's what i think too yeah i mean it would make sense it seems like they have a very specific goal in mind here he also ends up talking about how he can see some of his other siblings there like sandra Um, She played in the band. We know he has band interest. And he also mentions that he had a memorable moment his first night. He got pranked by the other boys in the school. They, like, folded over his top sheet on his bed to make it look like he could get in, like, slide under. But he actually couldn't, couldn't get his feet in, so that was a pretty funny prank. The next one they play is not 
very funny. They end up in like some weird ROTC thing when they're they're doing little weapons and doing like marching training. I don't know. It's just a few months that like seem normal. I can't believe they had actual guns. Fucking hell, right? Jeez. Do you know when you're going to basic training for the military? Like they give you live guns and they lock up the ammunition so freaking tight and you have to walk around with a lock on the trigger because like you can't even trust grown ass people i can't believe they were giving children guns he's going to community events he's making friends there's a pie eating contest and it sounds like pretty silly um you like they literally had to like eat the pies like whoever could eat the pie blindfolded like a dog the fastest i don't know some silly kid stuff and there was a girl that was like flirting with him yes he always had girls flirting with him it seems like he was a hot commodity yeah he mentions here that um he always liked to jog but he had a sea urchin that he stepped on a long time ago and he had the spine still stuck in his foot and like that shit happens you just you really just sometimes walk around with shit that got stuck in your body in life (laughs) under your skin or whatever he's just lived such a full life yeah he ends up joining a band and plays like bass drum bass drum however you want to pronounce it and um he talks about one night they're practicing they have a little snack after practice they like decide not to clean it up and he didn't know that they were supposed to be doing studying after this little snack happened all the guys decided to just kind of like lull around the tv and watch tv and then all of a sudden somebody comes in on page 41 and says what are you doing here and then raymond just gets punched in the face so hard that he's knocked to the floor and then he says he gets backhanded to the side of his face and then he's just like getting slapped back and forth a couple times somebody yells get up and get to my office and he has to go to this guy's office he pulls out a strap and he says put up your arms you're getting 10 straps on each arm and he gets whipped basically with a strap that's 18 inches by two and a half inches wide because he was supposed to be studying and he didn't know this and he's talking about how by the end of it like his hands are like numb he can't even feel them the guy tells him to go get his book and start studying and he can't even like move his fingers to pick up a book somebody has to tuck it under his arm he said it was like this for six hours and i just think like how terrifying Jesus Christ. And like, of course, by the time they get out to the TV, all the other kids are like, oh shit, like we better be studying when this guy gets back out here. But this was all to punish him for missing a couple minutes timeline. The Catholics think this is what God wants for their children? They thought this? That's fucking crazy. That's fucking crazy. I was like shaking after I read this. On page 42, closer to the end, this one talks about how people still today live with sex abuse this page he says some of my friends or acquaintances also had some horrid experiences as students including having their teeth removed for no reason my late friend bill had his sister pushed off a fire escape three floors up murdered by a nun during the 1930s or 40s fucking hell that that upset me me too There were countless acts of sexual abuse by priests, nuns, brothers, and staff. It hurts to write them now, but these were acts of extreme abuse. I feel they have to be discussed so closure can occur for our families who had this happen to their family members. And that's how chapter five ends. And we're in chapter six. Six, the Charlie family's experience. In this chapter, we get pictures of his family. So his mom, I believe his aunt, his grandpa, his uncle yeah grandma and it's really nice to see all of his family he talks like he really loves them you can tell a lot of them 
died pretty young. Like his mom died when he was just 13. Um, but he also mentions how like his mom went to the residential school. This has been like generational for his family, like a lot of indigenous families and how he can't speak his language because his parents didn't teach them. And he thinks it's because the residential school punished them so thoroughly for doing it. Uh, one of the punishments that uh, an elder had shared with him, an indigenous person was speaking their language and a nun came over, grabbed him by both ears, yanked them and forced him into the closet. But mm -hmm. he could not speak English. He didn't know English. Yeah, I feel like that was probably a common scene in these residential schools. Yeah. And not only that they didn't know English, but they didn't know the expectation was that they spoke English. <laughs> because if somebody's speaking to you in a language that you don't understand, sp saying, speak this language, you're not going to understand that message. No. But I just, I really liked this chapter. I liked the way he described all of his family members. He just absolutely adores his family and being part of a family is just so obviously the most important thing to him on page 47 he talks about just like rubbing out the cramps for his like grandpa in his <laughs> old man legs and just it's so sweet he's a family man and you can tell that he definitely regrets not being able to be there with his family as growing up yes and that it, it just fucking sucks there's no there's no reason for that he talks about how um you know his mom died when he was young so his aunts ended up being like a mother to him and just you know the whole chapter is just how grateful he is he even has some pictures in here of his aunt mary with oh mary maybe maybe i was wrong maybe mary was his aunt and not a girl that he had a crush on oh Did she, i don't i can't remember yeah. Anyway, they lived long enough to see him have kids, so that's nice. And that was important to him. And that's chapter six. And, and then he talks about meeting his wife and how they start their family, and this was actually really sad to me. His wife is younger than him, mm -hmm. and she came, he said that she kept pursuing him, but he didn't feel comfortable because of everything that he went through. It was 1972 when he graduated from high school. Uh, they met at work. And I really enjoyed him talking about getting to work because he would like ride the bus and he would bring spare change for kids who couldn't afford the bus because he used to be a kid who couldn't afford the bus and he just wants to make sure they can get where they're going. And that's just, he's just such a big hearted guy. But yeah, Lorraine uh, is pursuing the shit out of him. And finally one weekend she went out and bought the same outfit as her as his and came to work with it on um and then she was just always hanging around chatting and stuff and finally on page 52 they go on a date he finally asks her on a date they go to a soccer game yes and she was really into the team yeah they ended up having like pizza and he took her like when he takes her to pizza that's her first time ever having pizza and they just end up like hanging out and he's so cute in this picture on 52 right his hair's growing out lorraine looks like kaya the actress who plays yeah. Kaya right here yeah. doesn't she wow yes he credits lorraine to um like pulling him out of that pit of not feeling confident um that we talked about in a couple like previous chapters he says her openness and willingness to spend time with him was what helped him learn to have fun again kind of planned to go off to college but since they're kind of in love now he ends up staying with her and her family and her family does like a lot of traditional things like cooks traditional meals and even speaks some like indigenous languages 
that he hadn't been exposed to before. So he is just always appreciative of everything that happens to him, it seems. Yeah, they both ended up working at residential schools. He was a nightman. She was just working with young girls. They rented a house mm-hmm. and Till, and then he got a job at the sawmill. And then she ended up getting pregnant and had her their first kid in 1974. Then they end up kind of moving back to the island and getting... He gets a job at the tribe. And he gets a nice big drinking problem. And he has like a, a moment, a come to Jesus moment. Probably not Jesus though. And uh, one night when he's drunk looking at his son like, I can't fucking be like this. And gives up drinking like that, gives up partying, and they have a couple more babies. They end up with three sons. Raymond does mention how his kids do have to deal with some prejudiced parents on their sports team because, you know, they're indigenous and people are racist. And I feel like I hear about that in real life. Well, this is real life, but in my life as well. His uh, tribe is the First Nations. Yep, and he mentions that hardly any of the First Nations children um, have the opportunity to play sports in public. So he got his kids on the teams, and they just really love their kids. But one day at the end of page 55, he tells his wife to go take the boys shopping with her, and they all get up and go dress, get dressed and go, and... He goes down to the basement and pulls out some rope, spreads it out, and makes a noose out of it. Basically, he's decided he's going to kill himself. He's got a really chaotic brain, and he's just convinced that his life has no worth or purpose. And like we talked about in Beyond Magenta, Lorraine happens to call and notices that he sounds a little weird and is like, what's wrong? Talk to me. And keeps him on the phone for a few minutes and ends up coming home and saves his life. And he says, many survivors go through incidents like the one I just shared, but they succeed in ending their painful and miserable days. It's very difficult having thoughts of ending your life because some days are unbearable, remembering what happened to you, sexual and physical abuse. And he also mentions how even just losing friends or family members, these feelings manifest themselves deeply deep within us and like make us lose sense of hope and direction he is glad that he did not take his own life though and he continues on on page 57 saying isolation and silence seem to be our protection but what from with our reality our pains our memories and our struggles we isolate ourselves for too long because of shame this shame doesn't belong to us it has to go to the abusers for taking advantage of youth and helpless children preach yeah and he also he goes on and says many victims probably thought they were the only ones abused as that's what i thought myself but they were abused and in large numbers and he just wants victims to report this shit and shame these people and have them brought to justice if we can he says even like if it doesn't bring them to justice It'll help you find peace someday. Although, I don't know, because I don't trust the fucking police. Maybe you should just go to the abuser's house and burn it down. That's what I think, too. (laughs) Chapter 8, A Painful Disclosure to My Wife. So this one... Oh, fucking hell, this chapter's difficult. It's just one page. Um, Yeah. They're going to bed one night. He's 36 years old. He has a routine. He turns a nightlight on, and his wife was like, why why do you need a nightlight? And he was like, oh, I just don't want to stub my toe. And she's like, why? 
And he, she keeps trying to come up with these excuses and she keeps saying, why, why, why? And he got so frustrated that he just yelled out, I was sexually abused in the dark. And then he just cried uncontrollably for like three hours. Yeah. This is his first time talking about it, but he ends up telling her everything. And he says at the bottom of page 59, he didn't really know it at the time, but his disclosure was his relief. It was a chance to tear down the walls he had built around the sex and physical abuses. And now at least somebody knew. And he said he never, they never talked about it again, but the tears were telltale enough. I feel like this is what starts him on his journey for seeking therapy and stuff like that. So thank goodness for his wife. Yeah. The sad thing is he went and asked about finding a counselor and a doctor never got back to him. He says, apparently there was nothing out there for survivors. I feel like having a doctor let you down like that will have you really feeling like there is no help out there. And that ends chapter eight and we're in chapter nine. Cupper Island on film, My Brother's Abuse. Basically, he's invited to speak on a movie documentary type thing that is going through the residential school's history. Um, At this point, you know, it's finally starting to come out to the public what this is. I mean, maybe, I don't know if they knew the whole time what was going on at the residential schools and society just didn't care. We turned a blind eye or what, or if it was just like brought to light finally in the most recent decades, I don't know, but this documentary is done and him and his brother are invited to speak about what they went through. Uh, It was done in the late eighties. And he says, this is when they find out that they both were sexually abused. Yes. He's really just thankful for these people making this movie and bringing attention to their story. And like, he just ends this chapter with gratitude. Like he does so many things. I, I hope one day that I can be as wise sounding about shitty fucking shit as him, like the silver lining, because I would be raging that this documentary had to be made in the first place. Personally, I feel like would be my, my takeaway, but you can't be like that. Then you'll just be trying to hang yourself on a random day when your wife went shopping, I guess. Yeah. And I was wondering, because his first son was born in 74, but the residential school is closed in the 80s, right? So there was no way that his kids would have been forced to go. Yeah. Thank goodness. It seems like they ended up not going. I think he would have mentioned that if they did. We're on chapter 10. Our court case against our sex abusers begins is what it's titled. Just the inadequacy of the judicial system in all countries never ceases to amaze me. It's going to be my takeaway from this chapter just right here as we start it. But basically, um, he's contacted by some of the other students and they want to meet with a lawyer to represent them against their abusers. And they do. Dodie? is accused by 13 different kids legally in this case. I'm sure there were a lot more, but at least 13 came forward for this one. And I'm sure all of them, like Raymond, were feeling that they deserve some kind of consequence for what had been done. And let me tell you, they got their justice. Oh I mean, my we God. already told you. Oh my fucking God. This is so awful. Like, basically, they're, they're going to court. They're keeping all the witness separate. They don't want anybody talking to them. And basically, the lawyer is like, your justice is going to be that you see this guy handcuffed and walked out of court. He's going to get a perp walk of shame. Everybody's going to know what he did to you. And they do 
days of testimony. Doesn't Raymond end up doing testimony for like two days? Yes. I mean, it, it does seem like he has a lot of support there. There's like a random priest that comes up and hugs him, but like, fuck that guy because he's part of the problem, IMO. Uh, I mean, he's probably not part of the problem, but... And doesn't he apologize, too? He's like, I'm sorry on behalf of him, or I'm sorry on behalf of the church or something. Yeah, yeah, but Raymond's kind of like, okay, well, you didn't personally do anything to me, so okay. But a bunch of people, like, light a candle for him, and he goes up, he takes the oath. He says he has to swear on the Bible, which I was certain is not really a thing, or but maybe it is in Canada. I know it's not in the United States. He does two full days of testimony, just his testimony. Like, how much testimony was there? I don't know, but it seems like there's days and days. And he says it was super difficult, but he just stared at the fucker that did this shit to him and told his story like a badass. He mentions before... Uh, they end up sentencing him that, like, in between his testimony and stuff, there was a break in court, and they end up passing each other in the hallway. The judge asked Dodie if he, like, had anything to say, and Dodie just said he was regretful for what he did, and he was sorry for his actions. I think he's only sorry that he got caught. I think so, too. So, anyways, they're all sitting there waiting. The judge... Kicks everyone out, and the 13 victims sit there and wait because they were told by their lawyer their justice was going to be seeing this guy walked out. They didn't get to see that. The judge kicks him out, and they let this guy get arrested with no scene, no incident, just, of course, treating this man with the utmost respect because why should his life be hindered like this when all he did was abuse some boys? He got sentenced to three years, as we discussed. And Raymond says in here, it doesn't seem like it was enough, and I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah, he should have got at least 10 years for each boy. Page 66 ends with Raymond saying he has very little faith in Canada's court system for cases around residential school abuses. I agree. I I have very little faith in all court systems, but the... Canadian court systems created the residential schools, so I'm sure they give very few shits about its abuses. And page 67, he talks about how he started doing counseling, but it took a year, it took many years before it was available to survivors. Mm-hmm. And he said that his counselor asked him to write issues weekly so that he could work at his own pace for healing and that um, he was able to move to a point where he was healed and that counseling was learning and understanding about his issues that he faces as a survivor and allowed him to finally sleep and rest fully at night. I loved the last two paragraphs of page 67. He says, my counselor told me basically that we come to a standstill from the point of abuse, especially when it happened to us at a young age. We have to allow the younger you to Learn that you were abused and was a victim. It's very complex. He just hopes it sounds right. Most of my life, I carried the burden of blame and guilt, which hindered me as a person, and I struggled to get past the events in my mind. The younger me had to heal and allow the young boy to move past those painful events of abuse. So he's just talking about, like, you need to be able to feel your feelings, but not blame yourself. And then he also talks about, on page 68, having to forgive your abuser to find peace which I don't know I don't know how I feel about forgiving others to find peace within yourself yeah that's something I really struggle with so maybe I'm just never going to find peace and I'm always going to be an angry person but I'm glad that he is moving on and he's found something that works for him me too um but he does in this chapter saying that the court provided no closure and yeah 
it failed them 100%. And we go into chapter 11, painful settlement process for residential school survivors. More lawyers fucking around with these people. Basically, now he's meeting with these lawyers to get a financial settlement from the abuse. Um, Because, like, these people didn't just leave residential school and then go out and lead successful lives. Like, it's very hard to be a successful person when you're hindered by depression and anxiety and stuff that you can't move on from. So obviously they're expecting some sort of monetary compensation. And I agree that they should. I do too. So he put together three large binders about his life to give to these lawyers. And the entire time they would just basically talk down to him and say, your education was terrible. Your parents were alcoholics. You probably weren't raised right. You're in poor health. Why are, All why these are you things this are a direct result of like what they did to him. Yeah. And I feel like they're, they're just trying to make him devalue himself. So when they give him a small offer, he says yes. Um, and of course they offer something really small and he doesn't like it. Even though his lawyer is like pushing him, like saying, this is great. He um, makes him take it back and they up it a little and the lawyer pressures him into taking it. And he does. And I feel like the lawyer only pressured him to take it because he got paid too. Yeah. He mentions later, like, half of that. He only got half of the settlement because he had to pay his lawyer. He had to pay taxes and fees and all of this stuff. It's just like in Verity when her fucking agent wanted her to take that book deal because he was going to make that percentage just for sitting there in that meeting for half an hour. It's literally exactly like that. Like, this whole process to me just sounded like he was being victimized again it all seemed so grim he says and they really say things like you won't amount for to very much anyways so the lawyer tries to give back uh the binders that raymond made and make made, made <laughs> and he's like i don't want them you can keep them because it has all of his life history I feel like Raymond kind of wanted him to keep him so he would just know like how disappointed Raymond was in this outcome and how Raymond felt like he'd let him down. But the lawyer just totally fucking didn't get it. Yeah. I feel like the lawyer, he said the lawyer went back and deducted even more money from him because other people couldn't pay him. Yes. That's a fucking scam. And he said that happened to a lot of people because some, some survivors didn't get as much. Yeah. He mentions that there was no conscience shown by the Canadian government for their treatment of residential school survivors, especially the questionable handling of our cases during settlements with some delayed and dropped entirely. (sighs) Fucking sucks. He also mentions later in this chapter that he never really mentions how much he got, but he mentions that some people got $2,000. At the end of page 71, this kind of like really bothered me because I get where he was going with this but at the same time like it just it's just a different form of racism in a way uh a syrian man said a few years ago the government awarded him over 10 million dollars for how he was treated in prison oh yeah raymond brings up this other guy and he's like how is it possible that this guy got 10 million for being in prison but i i know people who only got two thousand for being raped by people who were working for the government and i'm like yeah that guy had a really fucking good lawyer yeah that that's the only difference between you guys like it, it doesn't even matter what crime the government committed against you guys it's who represented y'all and what was their intention to shame the government in front of everyone like i assume the syrian man's lawyer did or to yeah. get a quick couple bucks like i assume in raymond's lawyer did i don't yeah. know and then Raymond talks about how um, last year, I don't know when this book was written, 
I'm pretty sure this is within the last five years that he sat with someone else during a hearing and um, that person got a very large settlement. Mm-hmm. And so he ended up contacting Raymond contacted that person's lawyer and the lawyer sat down and talked with him and was like, Oh, if we, st- if we settled today, this is how much you would get, which was a much larger figure, mm-hmm. except Raymond signed at his settlement, signed an agreement saying he could not go back and sue. Yeah. So then Raymond contacts his own lawyer saying like, Hey, you didn't have to charge me all this, these fees. And his lawyer was like, Oh, well, I guess you could sue me. So his lawyer knew he did some fucking shady shit to him. This, this whole thing kind of pissed me off. Like I know money isn't everything, but it would really help. Yes, it would. This residential school did not set them up to have successful lives. It it didn't. And it just, it just keeping the man down. And in this chapter, Raymond doesn't end it as, like, grateful as he was at, as he's been in previous chapters. And I understand because it's a shitty situation. But at the same time, one thing I wrote for my notes is at least he made a difference for others. At least he was able to do this, like, lay the ground floor for others to be able to get settlements or come out against their abusers. Yeah, and I think he did mention in here how he, like – helped people like on their legal journey like pointed them in the right direction so I'm sure he was a positive life for a lot of people in that journey but dealing with the legal system it'll chew you up and spit you out and that's chapter 11 chapter 12 health issues yep this fuck they've got just crazy shit happens in his life he has a crazy car accident because he hits his stomach on the dashboard and then he ends up getting an infection on his stomach At this point, he's like 350 pounds. So when he went to go get gastric bypass, they found lesions in his abdomen, which ended up being an infection. And they had to remove that. And that took 60 pounds from his stomach. Yeah. Yeah. The lesions were from when he got that steering wheel in his stomach. And just like he has so many near-death experiences, like if he would have went to the hospital the next day, he would have died. Like, Jesus. Um, when they took the the lesions off, because when you mentioned he got up to 350 pounds, he'd been 300 pounds when he got in the accident. And then the, the grotesque shit on his stomach that formed from the infection from getting hit there was 60 pounds. He got 160 Oof. staples to staple that back together. There's a cute story on the top of page 75 of his granddaughter drawing a belly button on him because after that surgery his belly button was gone they just hacked off a bunch of skin off his stomach yeah she's a really beautiful girl yeah she is cute so he ends up like staying in the hospital for a while because after getting the gastric bypass surgery Mm -hmm. he really couldn't hold any food down so they had to go back to the hospital um, and a doctor, again, said, if you came in tomorrow, you would have died. Yeah. <laughs> so he stayed for six months because his stomach was covered in ulcers, and that stopped him from being able to drink anything. And at this point, he was at about 100 pounds. Yeah, he was emaciated. He was so emaciated, he had to, like, learn how to walk again. And, yeah, like... It's, it just sounds fucking awful. I can totally relate to being in the hospital and being completely just not able to move in a wheelchair and everything. But of course, he's still grateful. He's still grateful for his job, his sons, his wife. 
and by page 78, he's decided that he is trying to heal himself and be strong because he needs to, you know, find peace and strength so he can be well in his mind and body. Yeah, one of his doctors even challenged him and was like, what are you doing? And Raymond was like, oh, I just got done with my walk. And he's like, go for another. So then that's what Raymond kept doing, just kept walking so he could get back to walking again. Yep. And he finally gets home. He couldn't climb the stairs. His son and his friend have to carry him up, but he's really happy to be back home. Um, yeah. His wife is working, um, supporting them, and they they really take care of each other throughout the years. It seems like they have different periods of one of them working, the other person, like, trying to recover from stuff. But he ended up getting gangrene internally. Isn't that wild? Fucking wild. So, like, it's just, like, health concern after health concern. And then after that... Um, he had a massive hemorrhage. Yes! He says blood is exiting from every opening in his body. And they finally, like got somebody there to like give him an intravenous line in his arm. They gave him five pints of blood and like he had to get surgery and medication. He and had another six week hospital stay. Like I, I don't know how long all of this lasted, but he just had tons and tons of health issues. And like he mentioned, he thinks that stress made them worse at least. But good news, he's 71 now and he doesn't need a cane or a walker, but he does lose his balance every once in a while. But that's because of arthritis in his left knee. Yeah, I feel like being old, that just happens, you know? Yeah. And then we are in Chapter 13, and he goes on to talk about how he's, like, an elder of the First Nations tribe now. Um, he meets a lot of people. He does a lot of talking. Like, people recognize him from his movie that he did, even though it was 25 years ago. He, like, goes to schools to talk to the children there. He's been to universities to talk there about global studies and stuff like that. I bet he would be banned in our schools today. Oh, a thousand fucking percent. Um, he mentions at the top of page 83 how he's, like, telling a story about a Catholic nun in the middle of his group of, like, school children friends who are, like, singing and dancing, like, traditional indigenous songs, like, to their tribe or whatever. And they the nun comes in and says, stop, what you're doing is evil. That's why their faces are painted and they have pointed sticks. They are devils. And like, lady, calm down. That's makeup and weapons. Yeah. <laughs> but he, that's like such a traumatic experience. And that was such the standard for his residential school days that he just doesn't even feel comfortable singing, even though he knows that traditionally, like his people sing naturally. That's just a huge part of their culture. And then he mentions by the end of this chapter that there is going to be a second movie released in 2022. And although a lot of the people from the first movie have passed, um, a lot, some of the original ones will still be there to further discuss their story. Are you going to watch the first one? I don't know. I, I might watch the second one, but how hard will it even be to get your hands on it? 25 on, years old. It's on YouTube. Is it? Yeah. Maybe I will watch it. Did you watch it? No, I don't know if I can take myself to it. Yeah, it, it seems, like, really scary. I might, maybe not right after reading this, because, you know, I need to pace myself with the sad shit. Yeah. Yes, you do. <laughs> 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 uh, so that's how that chapter ends. And we're in chapter 14. He's working with men's groups. He loves just giving back to his community. And he really likes working with men's groups 
I think because um, there's like not a lot of support groups for men who have experienced this type of abuse. That's what so, I think too. Um, he also finds out, of course, here that he has high blood pressure. He's always going to be having health issues, it seems like. He makes a cookbook with his men's group. Yeah, and he ends up, like, holding health sessions with his men's group. Like, when he learns about the high blood pressure, he's like, you guys got to go get checked up and get your medicine and all this. So he's really, like, wifing these little men to do what they need to do, you know? That's what a wife would do, I think, or a mom. Have you heard – I'm sure you've seen the meme or heard of the story. Be the person – that you needed when you were younger. And I feel like he is that to other people. Yes. It's very sweet. Um, and on page 86, he's talking about how he no longer needs a nightlight and it's not a problem to sleep in the dark. And he says, periodically I do feel anger, but don't want to be known for anger or remembered for being angry, but he is still fucking pissed. He doesn't say that I'm paraphrasing at the churches and the Canadian governments. And he says it should be directed there because what they did was not cool. 120 years of devastation for children and families. He feels that he cannot be complacent because he's a grandfather and it's a role that he wholeheartedly loves and he wants to make sure things like this never happen to their people again. Mm -hmm. And he really hopes that future generations are going to remain proud of their heritage and understand that they have no limits for themselves. I like his rattle that he made too. Pretty cool. Me too. Me too. And then he, like, goes through his hopes and prayers for the survivors on page 88, um, just that they heal and move away from harsh treatments of other people and perpetuating that abuse. And then in here, he just keeps repeating how Canada, how the Canadian government and churches have to support them because of everything that they have put them through. Yeah, like, stop delaying justice and give some support to these survivors. They did this. They, they are at fault. I, I absolutely love this paragraph on page 89. To Canada and the government today, I want you to remember that you are res- still responsible for the actions of starting residential schools. It is a very difficult time for residential school survivors, as many of them do not have access to support in their communities today, and this is a huge concern. Survivors should not have to suffer and carry burdens of their memories from abuse of times at residential schools. It not only affects them, but the whole family and community who must still deal with hardships as survivors sometimes become abusers. He goes on to talk about like more consequences of the residential schools are that only 1% of his people can speak his language today. I don't know how to pronounce it, so I'm not even going to try to butcher it. That's exactly how I felt, so don't even. I'm sorry. No, Um, you're fine. Yeah, and he just goes on to talk about how he has no fears anymore about speaking about his um, experiences, and no matter how difficult it is, it is super important that the story gets out there. That he believes it helped with his healing process. Yes, yes. He cannot stress enough the importance of talking for your healing. Yep. So chapter 15 is titled Speaking to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So I'm assuming that this commission was made because of... Oh, it was created through a legal settlement between survivors, the Assembly of First Nations, Inuit representatives, and the parties responsible for creation and operation of the schools, the federal government, and churches. Yeah, this whole thing seemed like a sham to me put on by the Canadian government to get yes. people to ta- stop bringing up residential schools. Yeah. But um, Raymond was kind of honored to open the court, and he ends up talking for an hour, even though he was scheduled for 20 minutes. <laughs> 
Um, yeah. And we could see how Raymond could kind of get on with some conversation. Yeah. Um, but I mean, 20 minutes feels like no time at all when your story is like this. Yeah. Um, Truly. And of course, he's just reiterating in this chapter that the cycle of abuse is like what needs to be stopped. He mentions at the end of page 93 that like they have abusers in their communities that attended the residential schools who abuse family or people physically and such sexually. They were hurt. So now they begin to abuse people in our communities. This is so sad. Like that's, that's why getting the story out is important. Yeah. He mentions that residential schools were open from 1876 to 1996. 1996. Jesus fucking Christ. That's so long. So they haven't even been closed 30 years. Yeah. Page 94, we talk more about the babies being tossed into the still incinerator, um, being buried beneath that apple tree or thrown into the ocean, you know, probably babies as a result of sexual abuse. Found 7,000 graves. 7,000 graves they have definitely found. That's, that's, that's so many graves of children. Children aren't just supposed to die at school. Ugh, that's how chapter 15 ends. Um, it just, like, everywhere he goes, he has to relive this trauma. Thank God it's healing for him. Yeah. Because it's not healing for me. Yeah. I guess this is our first experience being traumatized. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like this anyway. Yeah. So chapter 16, the school is gone, but the memories remain. Um, You know, he's just talking about how the school's actually been torn down. Uh, He talks about the history of the school, too, how, like, it started as a little wooden building, and then eventually it was built into the behemoth that it was. I think it's so funny here that at first, in the 1920s, it burned down. Yeah. Like, like God like didn't want it there. Exactly. You guys are missing all of God's signals. Yeah. <laughs> you religious people. You Catholics. Um, man, this story on page 96 about how his uncle had to kill pigs and cows with a sledgehammer. Uh, and how while he was there, like, he worked all day. During his time at the residential school, his uncle Simon only had 15 minutes of schooling per day. But then during, like, the trial to get paid, they're like, you didn't have very good school. Well, because you made me work all fucking day. On page 97, he says, the richest church in the world has made no efforts to assist healing for survivors for all the sex and physical abuses they inflicted on the children. They haven't. Not even in, not even like, not even in America or all across the world where they molested children, not even in residential schools, just like all of the Everywhere. children. Yeah. Yeah. And all, you can't all... even, you can't even get them to be freaking charged. Yeah. He says some areas have lost so much culture, language, and traditions as they were denied at residential schools because Canada did not allow us to use them and harshly punish children for doing so, especially around urban areas areas he goes on to talk about how injections were given to children they just did like experiments experiments on them um then he also talks about how in the 1940s over a thousand children were deliberately starved at residential schools so they could study malnutrition yeah just really nazi style experiments oh doesn't he say that oh yeah um At the end of 97, the last sentence of the last paragraph, 
I was told that in Germany, Hitler used some of the same procedures that had been used in Canada's residential schools. That makes me so fucking sick. On page 98, he said, are they really helping or are we just fodder for their industries? I, they are just fodder. Yeah. Um, he goes on to talk about these Gladue reports that come out that like basically have like the history of these people that are survivors of the residential school so they can take them to their doctors and these other important people in their lives to kind of understand their background a little bit more. However, I was reading that thinking, I feel like if you have a Gladys file made on you, you probably are being restricted in some other ways. Like that seems like a way for the government to keep tabs on their indigenous people because i just don't trust the government tracking us all the time they don't need all this info about us no but this was all in the name of assimilation and it was nothing short of a genocide he says he was able to sit with the elders of his tribe and get a presentation from the university of columbia about children's grave sites and they found 26 burial plots that were unmarked and apparently they're going to be continuing to scan more grounds of the residential schools with this like in-ground reading technology. So they're probably sadly going to find even more. He watched Indian horse on a date with his wife one night. And he said that the movie was really realistic to the things that he had gone through. That he cried in the theater. He said that they did such a good job um, portraying the nice priest who does these things to kids. Yeah, that must have been a huge trigger. Yeah, it actually makes me want to watch it. Yeah, I'm very interested as well, although it'll probably make me sick. Yeah, and I'm also shocked that it's a Clint Eastwood movie because, I mean, Clint Eastwood. Yeah, right. Is he the priest? No, he's just the executive producer. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I might have to check that out. But that's how Chapter 16 ends. Um, You know, he's just furthering his work. And then we've got chapter 17. Is this the last chapter of the book? Yes. It is called Reflections. Yep. And he's reflecting on whether or not he's been a good dad. And his future goals of being healthy in his mind and body and not being held back by the abuse. And it's just, it's cute how he talks about just enjoying the simple things like having daily coffee with his wife. And like, when I'm in my 70s, Matt better still appreciate seeing me every day to have coffee. He goes on about breaking from survivor mode because that just suspends your life in pain and agony. He's very hopeful for the future of of his people with Mm -hmm. the thoughts of all the grandchildren and young people that can forge a path for themselves Yep, and not have to deal with the abuse from residential schools. Yep. And yeah, I mean, it ends on a positive note. He just wants everyone to remember things happen for a reason. You have to keep your mind strong. He says that's key for our people and youth now. Yeah. He says the last school closed a little over 25 years ago. Um, So it still remains very fresh for his people. No matter how fresh and painful it is, we can't let those perpetrators off the hook yep i love this paragraph that starts at the end of page 104 we survivors have to reclaim ourselves as proud people through counseling and sharing our stories and talking with other survivors the young ones have to learn about the tragic times we had i feel that their parents grandparents and siblings still suffer quietly with trauma they rarely share their painful times of residential experiences with anyone at all Maybe they feel it's safer this way, but I feel it prolongs their hardships and difficulties. Be patient and love them as it's important. 
I did love that. And I also love the last line in the book. Mm-hmm. Even though I had a hard time most of my life as a survivor, I want to love and cherish what time I have left on this earth. I don't want to be a bitter and angry old man. It's not my thing. Life is too short for this kind of situation to hold me in its grip. I loved that. That's why I thought we had to open the episode with it. Yes. <laughs> Such a good quote. So um, good. I did go through and read the acknowledgments. It sounds like his wife has had her own health struggles. Um, and then he read, he wrote a pretty cool poem in the back of the book. So if you have the book, definitely check that out. And he also went through and like told us about some of the charges for some of the people involved in this story, which we also talked about because I couldn't stop Googling them while I was reading it. But yeah, um, that was a really rough read, but I'm glad we read it. And I feel like he shares a story with a lot of people in the world who had to deal with something similar because the government wants their society to be they want, the way they want it to be. I thought it was a good read. Very yeah. hard. I'm glad it was short. I could not have taken 300 pages of that. No, no. Um, definitely, if you have time to read it or listen to it, definitely suggest it. Yeah. The next book we're going to read is a little more fun. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's not depressing. It's Local Woman Missing. I know you're on vacation, so do you want me to read the synopsis? Yes, please. I don't have it in front of me. That is fine. Local Woman Missing opens with a girl, Delilah, who disappeared 11 years ago, finally being found again. With her return, it reopens questions about what happened the day she and her mother went missing and another woman, Shelby Tebow, who had disappeared soon before that. In this thrilling and carefully plotted domestic mystery, this community and these families must unravel the secrets of the chilling events from many years ago. Ooh. Yes. Well, I'm by, excited. It's by Mary Kubaka, Kubika. I don't know, butchering it, but I'm excited. I've been seeing it all over my TikTok, all over my Instagram, so. This one's been on the list for a while. So if we want to finish this book in three episodes, where should we read to for the next one? Okay, so there are 378 pages in this book. We would have to read to Kate, which is page 130. Okie dokie, page 130. So we're going to read to Kate, page 130. Man, I'm excited. This, this seems like it's going to be one of those ones where we're like guessing who it was or what happened the whole freaking time. And then when we get to the end, we're going to be totally wrong. Yeah. I'm That's excited. Too. Me too. <laughs> All right. Well, I will read the first 130 pages and I'll talk to you about it in a couple weeks.